0: with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. The Office of Naval Research ONR and the Naval Research Enterprise are the catalyst of future naval power, ensuring technological dominance for its fleet and forces. This enterprise is tasked with discovering, developing, and delivering new technology and capability for the Navy and Marine Corps by sponsoring new research and creating new capabilities for America's sailors and Marines. What are the strategic priorities for the Chief of Naval Research? How is ONR changing the way it does basic and applied research? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Rear Admiral Lawrence Selby, Chief of Naval Research. Admiral, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. So would you tell us more about the history and mission of the Office of Naval Research, ONR? Why is it so important to the success of the U.S. Navy and the Department of Defense now more than ever?
1: Yeah, so the Office of Naval Research was actually established uh, by a, by an act of Congress uh, back in 1946. Public Law 588, signed by President Truman on August 1st, 1946, established this office uh, to really focus on science and technology and how it will enable kind of future naval power and and just to be clear I'm the office of naval research not navy research and so by using the term naval that means i support both the u.s navy and the united states marine corps so it's both organizations in the department of the navy
0: so admiral as chief of naval research can you tell us how your enterprise or organization is organized? What's the size of its budget
1: and the composition of your workforce? Yeah. So as the chief of Naval Research, I really I really command the entire Naval Research Enterprise. And that consists of not just the Office of Naval Research, but also the Naval Research Laboratory, another organization called Office of Naval Research Global or ONR Global, uh, another organization called NavalX. Um, and, and there's another organization which does highly classified work. So there's a bunch of different entities that are part of this entire enterprise. And as the chief of Naval Research, I oversee all of that. A lot of people just confuse me with just leading ONR. And that's because that's kind of the vestiges of how this positioning was created. It was created back when ONR was established in 46. But over the years, these other organizations have been added to it. And so now it's the entire Naval Research Enterprise. And so we're responsible for... Again, Navy and Marine Corps science and technology. And in it kind of the, the way we do budget budgeting in the in the military, and the in you know the DOD, we've got RDTE funding, so research, development, test, and evaluation money. And even that is broken into you know, like eight different flavors. The first three, three flavors, which we call 6.1, 6.2, and 6.3, which means nothing to your readers or listeners. But that money is everything from the basic research money that we give to a college or university in the form of grants to do research, uh, all the way through developing what we call advanced technology demonstrators. So it's taking that research that's done in maybe a college laboratory, eventually you determine that there is or there is not a naval application. And if there's not, we we stop the research or we change the re- direction of the research to go in a different direction. But once it has a naval relevance, we start applying different monies to it, which is now applied research dollars, which now has an application for what you want to do with that, that technology. And then from that, you'll actually develop some kind of technology demonstrator to prove to a warfighter a sailor or a marine in my parlance, that this technology has relevance to them. And so that's kind of how we do it. We take things, take things from a technology readiness level, you know, you know, zero basically ideas formed. So TRL one, up through TRL five or six. We don't take it all the way to nine, which is the most mature you can be, but we take it to five or six. And then we have to find a home for the technology. We've got to find a transition partner that will take that. And either put it into an existing platform or make it something new for a new capability that doesn't even exist yet. And so those are um, those relationships and those transitions are where you have what we call the valley of death. So sometimes an idea will get to that tier five or six. We may think it's, it's relevant, it's worthy of transitioning, but no one on the other side of, the, of that valley either has the money The timing is not synchronized properly, or they just don't have an interest. And sometimes those ideas fall into the valley of death and they don't transition. Sometimes those things, maybe they should fall into the valley. I don't think everything, if everything transitioned, you're probably not trying hard enough. So probably having a few fails is good. Uh, I, unfortunately, I feel we have too many fails. And so one of my quests, one of my missions over my past almost three years now in this job is to really try to tighten up that, you know, put, put a bridge across the valley, as it were. Tighten up the processes to move more tech across that bridge. And if you're gonna fail, then let's find out quickly. Let those things fall in that valley quicker and then move on to the next thing. And so we do that. Uh this with a budget of on the books, it's about 2.5, 2.6 billion a year. We traditionally get additional money from Congress in the form of, you know, we call it plus ups or additional money. Um, this year we are looking at almost a billion dollars of additional funding coming from Congress for, for other other projects. So three point five, 3.6 billion or so in, uh, in FY 23 that we're working on. And again, it's that, that's our early, that early science technology money.
0: Admiral you did kind of hint at your duties and responsibilities leading such an important mission and an expansive portfolio. I was wondering if you have any more to elaborate, but what's a day in the life or a week in the life of the chief of Naval research?
2: Oh
1: gosh. Wow. Well, it's incredibly exciting. Um, So, I mean, so I'll come in and I'll I'll have maybe a uh, uh, a in-person meeting with a with a person who's got a new idea, a new company. Maybe it's a maybe it's a director of um, research, vice president of research at a university, that wants to come see me and talk about. Work we're doing together and, and looking for maybe new, more opportunities. Uh, I have a lot of you know internal meetings as well with my team, talking to the contracts team, the finance team about how we're doing our, on our obligations and expenditures of our dollars. I'm also the Naval STEM executive. So I've got a STEM team and we'll have meetings frequently talking about STEM opportunities. I'm recording videos and podcasts like this frequently um, to, to try to motivate kids or, or others to to do things that are uh, you know stem related and try to keep kids excited about stem i've got another team that works on you know diversifying our team so we got a diversity equity inclusion team and we talk about ways we can reach a broader audience of both, not just kids but adults as well to try to attract them to become part of our team uh, so i do that i get uh, i get pulled to the pentagon frequently for meetings with with other officials talking about the things that Either they they would like me to do for them or things we're already doing where I'm looking for that transition partner to, to build that bridge across that valley of death. And so I do a lot of that, walk around the Pentagon, trying to build those relationships. Um, also work with our, my other uh, my sister services, the Air Force, the Army, and also the Coast Guard, um, where, there's, where there's linkages for, there's synergies on things that we do together. And so we, we spend some time together talking about those things. I work with the Office of Secretary of Defense Research and Engineering, so the Honorable Heidi Hsu and her team uh, on a lot of issues, talking about things we can do up to the you know OSD level to support her and, and the Secretary of Defense's mission. So it's a, it's a host of things. It's a very busy day. And then I travel. I, I have a, a fair amount of travel I have to do. Some is domestic, uh, going to see maybe some research we're doing somewhere, going to a university, going to a STEM event to see kids doing robotics competitions. And then some international. I, I, have a, I have a whole nother hat where I'm the senior naval national representative. So naval topics for, for, in this case, it's really Navy topics. It's for the chief of naval operations. I'm his representative in countries around the world talking about everything from science to technology projects we can do together, even up to the point of developing capabilities together so uh, more mature things beyond science and technology and i spent a fair amount of time on the road uh, with those relationships and and sometimes they come here and we host them here at uh, in my headquarters here in arlington so so yeah so my days are <laughs> very, very busy but but all in all it's it is the best job i've ever had i mean it, it is an amazing amazing job i meet amazing people and exposed to amazing technologies all day long it comes through. I'll
0: tell you that your passion definitely comes through, sir. So the question, I the next question, was around. I, I, it's a very exciting uh, portfolio that you lead, and it, just giving a sense of what your week's like. Uh, I don't. Uh, you got to. it got to be two of you. But I'm wondering, what are some of the key
1: management challenges you face in your role, and how have you sought to address some of those challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think I've hit some of that. So, so some of this is this transition to technology. I, I have been saying for a while, and if you've been reading my stuff on you know, online or. TV, in My videos, I truly believe we are, in some ways, still fighting the last fight. And, and in this, what I'm talking about is kind of the Cold War model. I, I truly believe that the DoD is is still, for the most part, organized kind of around that model. And while there's pockets of excellence trying to get us into this century, I I think we're not we're not going fast enough. And so that's for me the biggest challenge is how do I you know, disrupt our own system to look for new ways of doing business. Uh, to try to attract new talent, different talent. To try to uh, you know convince people in the Pentagon that I can't wait until you know Palm 25 to start something that's going to change three times between today and fiscal year 25 if I don't start it right now. And and that's hard because the way we're organized, it's really organized around procuring large complex things like satellites and nuclear submarines and destroyers and high-end fighters and missiles. And we still need those things. So I'm very clear when I speak to people that I'm not suggesting we not do that, but I, I think we need to have another host of systems and sensors that are actually a lot simpler and maybe they're complicated, not complex, uh, you know, that's, that's there's a nuance there, but, but it's not complex. It's, it's complicated. And as a result, maybe they're even less expensive and and maybe they don't have as much range or endurance, but still they have a purpose and a function. And so I've been talking about this for a couple of years now, and it's really starting to resonate with people. And, you know, Chris Bros and I have had some great conversations, you know, he's, he's a believer in this kind of future, more agile kind of uh, warfare uh, he wrote that book, The Kill Chain, a couple years ago, which, uh, which he and I have had some great discussions about. So it is starting to catch on in pockets. And I I think the biggest thing I'm most proud of in this job is I think I've actually allowed a host of younger and middle-tier people, civilian and military, to actually kind of ask questions and, and question the way we're doing business in a respectful manner. But they're actually questioning and they're coming up with new ideas. And you can see the excitement, you know, when you go into a group of these folks and you talk about these, you know, advanced concepts, they get it. And and I'm not suggesting my my peers don't get it. They do get it, but they're also kind of, they've been in the system long enough and they've been doing things the same way long enough that that's kind of what they do. And oh, by the way, we still got to do that stuff because we're still building those complex things. It's how do you allocate enough time in your day to also focus on these other things which I think are tremendously impactful. And so that is one of the biggest challenges is how do you change the system or develop maybe a, a parallel system that does these alternate kind of what, what I call the small, the agile, the many type things, while you also have another system, which is really the DOD 5,000 and the acquisition system we have today that does the, the complex things. Let that system keep doing that. Arguably it does it pretty well. I mean, yeah, you can knit, knit out of here and there, but at the end of the day, You get a really capable Virginia-class submarine or Joint Strike Fighter or, you know, uh, Arleigh Burke Destroyer. It does that pretty well. So let that system do that. We need something else for these other things that I'm talking about, things that are much more digitally-based, software-based systems and sensors. We need a a different model to go do that. And, And that's part of my scout campaign you know, I'm scouting for new ways of doing business, scouting for new approaches to experimentation, scouting for new approaches to solving problems. You know, that's another thing I talk about a lot. We are so focused on requirements, which again, takes a year or longer to develop a requirement. You then have to budget for it. Then you have to go you know, procure whatever you've got the requirement for. Again, big billion-dollar things, that's a good process. You still want that requirements process. For most of these other things I'm talking about, We need to become problem-focused. What's the problem we're trying to solve? And then go seek solutions, many of which are potentially commercially available. And I don't even need to go design or build. I just go buy it and provide it to the warfighters. Hell, maybe I don't even buy it. Maybe I just contract for it, contract for the service. Put that sensor in this block of the ocean and give me data. I'll pay you day for day. I mean, it's that kind of model. So I'm trying to really tilt it the way we do business to open different pathways for solving problems that the warfighters have right now that can be solved much more quickly than developing a requirement, putting it in your POM 25 request, and then going through all the long stroke of things you do in the traditional acquisition process. This has got to be something different. And that's that's what I'm trying to do.
0: Good way to segue to my next question about how you lead. And so what are some of the characteristics of an effective leader, given your background and experience? And maybe you could share with us some of your leadership principles you follow.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, uh, the biggest thing that I have kind of learned throughout my life is that uh, you, I, I, this is just for me, and uh, maybe it applies to others, I, I have to first come into any new organization or team or any, any decision that I'm leading, and I have to learn about it. I want to get, get aligned to the, uh, the current circumstances. So I spend a, a little bit of time just listening and learning. Um, being inquisitive, asking questions, um, asking why, ask why a lot, you know, why, why we do it that way? You know, why, why is it, uh, you know, this then vice that Um, I try not to be prescriptive, at least not too soon because as soon as I'm prescriptive, you know, people just kind of tend to fall in line and do what you say. And that's, that can be dangerous if you, if you haven't taken the time to get out of the insight. So I I find it's preferable to listen, vice to talk initially, least initially, Ask probing questions and just listen. And I think I've learned that, uh, you know, from the days of commanding a submarine until now. I mean, I, I, I think that's done me pretty well. And then get to know your people and recognize that one of your functions as a leader is to ensure that the people that are solving the problems for you or doing different jobs for you, your mission is to support them and then remove any of the major barriers that get in their way. Um, don't, don't try to micromanage what they do. Yes, it's okay to ask them for updates once in a while and status what they're doing, but don't you know, don't overburden them with uh, micromanagement. Uh, but really be there to remove the barriers that, that get in their way. And then build teams that can you know, solve the problems. And for me, that's always been to build kind of a diverse team, diversity in every aspect, diversity you can think of. Don't make it too big because it gets too big. It becomes more of a committee vice, vice a team trying to solve a problem. And, uh, and just unleash them on the problem. And, and kind of stand back and again look for barriers and then go bust the barriers down and then then get back out of the way again. So that's kind of the way I do it. Um, I don't know. That's, that's I think that's done me pretty well. And again, I, I've gotten. I really love people. Uh, I love building teams and I love finding problems or looking for new opportunities and then unleashing those those teams of people to go you know solve a problem or to, or to help develop kind of a new a new concept that's never even been done before. That's exciting and fun for me.
0: What are the key strategic priorities for the Chief of Naval Research? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
2: To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the
0: Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Rear Admiral Lauren Selby, Chief of Naval Research. You know, sir, as the Chief of Naval Research, you are responsible, as I say, for reimagining naval power for the future in all domains from the ocean floor to space. And where I'm going with this is I'd love for you to outline your strategic vision uh, for your organization and the enterprise. And perhaps you could highlight some of your key priorities that make this vision that you outlined before a reality.
1: Yeah. So again, it, it, it all starts with people. And so one of the foundations for my, you know, my strategy and my vision is to make sure that I've basically built a, a highly effective team of dedicated professionals to uh, uh, to do science and technology. Um, and in my mind, it starts in kindergarten. And so again, the STEM, my, my hat as the Naval STEM executive is critical to that where I uh, I've got a team of folks here at, at O&R, in the, at this o and headquarters that, that lead that, but then they work with the rest of the entire Navy and Marine Corps team to have STEM presence uh, at high schools and middle schools and, you know, uh, science fairs and robotics competitions across the country, sometimes even in other parts of the world, to get kids excited about science Usually kids are actually pretty excited about science, elementary school, but really to keep them excited about science, to mentor them and to pull them across. There's, there's a valley of death for kids in STEM too. And it's middle school. I, at least that's my personal experience. It's, it's like they grow up inquisitive. They love science. think it's really cool. Somewhere we're middle school. It, it, either it's done, done become cool or oftentimes a kid may not see someone that looks like them that's more senior or older doing something that they think is cool and fun. And as a result, they kind of lose interest. So anyway, so that value depth exists there too. And so we, I wanna to try to find ways to, you know, minimize the kids you lose because of that. You may lose them because they truly love music or, or art and that's fine. But if you lose a kid because they don't see someone who looks like them, that's 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 wrong. We need to diversify our workforce. So anyway, so it starts with STEM. So foundational, is people, get them in, uh, track them and then give them meaningful work. Uh, and, and again, just kind of step back, stay out of their way let them do their jobs. Uh, present them with very unique challenges, uh, but also with the equipment, the facilities, uh, the resources they need to do their their, their mission, their science, their, their engineering, whatever it is they do. Give them what they need to do that. Connect them with the true warfighters. So allow the scientists to travel to the waterfront to meet a Marine, meet a sailor, allow the Marine, the sailor to come to the laboratory to, to meet the scientists and, and try to facilitate that. So people are exchanging ideas. And, and for a scientist or engineer at a laboratory or warfare center to know a sailor or a Marine because they've been to that base, been on that ship, been on that submarine, see not just the sailor, but also the equipment that that scientist or engineer maybe cares about and then see it in the context of how it operates. That can really keep people working for us forever. You, you find people that get into this organization, and uh, I, I was giving out some longevity awards recently. I think there was a 50-year award I just gave out to somebody. So you get people to come here, and they just they love that connection to the sailor and, and the fleet and the sense of purpose that they garner. So part of my vision is to kind of establish that environment where people, they love what they do, they feel connected to the end user, and the technology and the equipment they have to operate with is well class
0: admiral as a follow-up to that strategic vision you just laid out why is it smart to develop a strategic hedge and how do specific
1: internal drivers and external trends shape and inform that hedge yeah so i mean i think you you can look throughout history different examples of where technology is kind of move moved ahead like it does but um the organization has has lagged behind it And, and again this is common this is this is is the way humans are you get kind of set in your ways of 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 whatever your daily life is like and the technology you have and then new things are presented to you and there's always going to be a couple early adopters and there's going to be most of us in the middle of that bell curve who who kind of take it at a later date after it's kind of been proven and then there's gonna be some laggards who just kind of never get it and they just kind of dismiss the whole thing and and they're kind of the dinosaurs just to be frank um so i think we're kind of at that pivotal moment again in history where technology has raced pretty far ahead of, of uh, the organizations that, in my case, uh, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the, the DoD, uh, and, and many other companies and corporations and, and departments across the government. It's not just DoD. But that technology has gotten pretty far ahead, and we're kind of struggling to catch up. And if you look back to the 20th century, and you just think about the period between World War I and World War II, technology was advancing and uh, you know, these aviators were becoming a, a real kind of a, had a real relevance to warfare as well as the transportation but warfare is the, the point we're going to talk about here and uh, there was another cadre of these aviators that thought hey, I what if we can operate off ships and um, they convinced enough people in the Navy to actually fund some experimentation and some, and some flat tops, some aircraft carriers and fortunately we were able to kind of develop a cadre of people who understood how to fly airplanes off of ships and how to employ them in warfare, because there was a whole other cadre of folks, and it was the majority of folks that basically said, hey, the battleships have been doing us a great service since the turn of the century, and uh, we're going to keep these things around because they're going to be the future of warfare, and we're going to just keep using these things, and if we have a, a conflict, then the battleships are going to go over there and you know sink, sink the enemy, and that'll be the end of the war. Now, we all know what happened, uh, you know, in World War II and December 7th in particular. And fortunately, uh, we had a backup plan. We had a hedge strategy. And that's kind of what this the hedge strategy, It's just like investing. You may have a primary asset that you they put a lot of your money in, but you also want to hedge that because what if that primary asset takes a hit in the stock market? You want to have a another strategy that's got so maybe some other types of investments that will weather that storm, as it were. Same thing here. We need to have a hedge. So I think today, I think you look around the Navy, um, and Marine Corps and the head strategy is really based upon these complex things I talked about, you know, again, high-end fighters, submarines, aircraft carriers, destroyers, satellites. And I, I just think we need, we need a backup plan because I think like everything in life, um, you know, there's, there's a point where that technology or capability is at its peak and there's a point where you move past that and something else takes place. And again, I am not suggesting that's going to happen tomorrow, but I think it's within kind of sight this century that that transition will happen just like it did in the last century. And we need to be ready for that, which means we need to start trying things, experimenting with new concepts and technologies, and over time, making them more and more a part of your mainstream operations. And if something were to happen one day and we take a hit, uh, we'll have a backup plan. We'll have some other ways of also responding. That's the long way of talk about the head strategy. That's what that is. That's a wonderful perspective.
0: sir. So earlier you mentioned the idea of embracing uh, the small, the agile, the many. Can you explain what this phrasing and a concept means in practice? And what are some of the multiple advantages of associating with this small agile, and many platforms?
1: Yeah. So again, in contrast to the large complex warships and, uh, and fighters and satellites, which, which also are very expensive, um, it's hard to produce those quickly because it does take time to build. And it's hard to produce those in numbers because we don't have an infinite, you know, numbers of number of dollars in the treasure. We just don't. So you're never going to really be able to build the mounts you need or reconstitute quickly enough because again, the, the length of construction span times is, you know, on the order of five or more years for most of those kind of things. So, the contrast to that is this idea of the small, the agile, the many. So literally smaller in in terms of uh, maybe physically smaller, but also cost size, you know, smaller. Um, As a result, you can have many of them, but the agility part is critical as well. And it's not necessarily the physical agility, although that's nice. It's really the agility in the sense that I can very rapidly adapt and modify what it looks like, what it sounds like, the design of it, the operating patterns of it, everything from the acoustic signature, the RF signature, that agility is critical. I think it's a critical in wartime, just as is as critical in the business world. If you have a product that you've commoditized, if you don't find a way to change that from time to time, someone else is going to beat you in the market share. That's why you see new iPhones every year, new Android devices every year. I mean, they're all trying to, out compete each other, so they're trying to maintain some agility. Apps, you know, you can they update apps like every flipping day. I mean, so that agility to be able to rapidly modify and change is critical to survival, survival of species, survival of of, uh, of navies or marines, marine corps. So that's what I'm talking about. So small, as well as cost point, uh, agile, that adaptability being very rapid, and many you can deploy these things in the hundreds or thousands, and that that number is is important because. Some degree of this is to confuse and confound an adversary. Some is to provide kind of wide area coverage of an area. Some is to recognize that you're going to lose a bunch of them. And if the cost is low, you you maybe don't care as much. And if the technology you can keep either as close to commercial as possible, or if there's some, you know, I'll call it special sauce involved, it's got some uh, DoD-like flavor to it, you've got a way to safe it or wipe it or clear it. So even if somebody picks it up, it's useless by the time they they take it back to the beach. So that's kind of the concept of the small, the agile, and many. You know, I started talking about this a couple of years ago, and then what happened a year ago? Ukraine happened. And what do you see on the news, uh, you know, every night? You're seeing quadcopters, uh, you know, delivering target coordinates of, of Soviet or Russian t- tanks. You're seeing um, effects, you're seeing supplies being delivered with quadcopters. You're, you're seeing all kinds of use of autonomous systems and sensors. You're seeing coders on the battlefield that are adapting agility, adapting how these things operate, how they communicate. That's that's what I'm talking about. And it's playing out right now. Um, some will counter that, well, those those devices you're talking about there, Admiral Selby, they, they don't have endurance. They can't go very far. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I, I take that point. But what if I've got a way to get it in there on some type of a, a ship, a submarine, some other larger device that maybe it's manned, maybe it's unmanned, but it can fly in further and then drop these things out the back and then they can go do their thing. That's how you get after this. And I think over time, the endurance is gonna is going to improve, the agility is gonna it's not gonna, they're never gonna fly as far as a, you know, or go as far as a nuclear submarine. I got it. But they still have tremendous utility and I think can actually uh kind of tilt the balance of power if you if you employ it the right way. And that kind of uh, your
0: your anecdote uh, that you just shared kind of hits right into my uh, my question around autonomous systems. I don't know if you have anything else to like. I'm, I was wondering how you're perfecting
1: this technology. Is there anything you want to share with us there? Well, I mean, I think one way is experimentation. You you do a lot of experimentation, and again, you do that with uh, some of you do in a in a modeling and sim world, or just proof of concept before you even go spend a lot of money uh, or spend a little money. Uh, then eventually, though, you want to you want to get the device, the thing, whatever it is you're working with, and you want to go put it in a relevant environment and see how it does. And you want to have real warfighters that understand how it might be used, stand there watching and giving you ideas and, and giving you feedback and, you know, and them giving, you know, and, and vice versa, you're giving them ideas too. And uh, I think that's how you do, you do experimentation. And that's also, I think a problem that we have because um, there's a book called Lean Disrupt. And, and in that book, it talks about the way you disrupt is you have to do three key things ideate incubate and scale so ideate come up with ideas I, I think we do that pretty well i think a lot of organizations do we got a lot of smart folks those sailors and marines i talked about they're coming up with ideas left right and center my scientists my engineers they come up with ideas so we have a lot of ideas flowing that's that's good the the middle ground incubation is where you take in an idea that you think has a relevance to solving your problem and you mature it maybe you maybe you've got to build something maybe you gotta do some coding and you experiment, you experiment with it to, to further the, the concept into a, a real thing. That's the incubation. We know how to do that. I contend we don't do that enough or at a scale that really is, is relevant. And that's an area where I want to focus. And that's also a scout focus areas. How do you develop that muscle memory and that machine that knows how to kind of do this experimentation all the time. The final piece scaling is when you have something that comes out of the, you know, the incubation machine, that everybody says, slaps the table and says, yep, yeah, that's good enough, or that that's perfect. Then have to either buy it in numbers or build it in numbers or contract for it in numbers. We don't do that very well because again, we default back to the the way you build a billion dollar thing. And the first question I'll get is when I say, I've got this great thing, they'll say, Well, you have a requirement for that. I'm gonna go, I don't have a requirement for that. But I got a problem, I got a solution. And then they say, Well, put that in your problem, 25 request, Selby. I'm like, that's too late. Because this, this is going to change a 100 times between now and then. So that's a, that's another thing we got to solve. And that's where you need a little bit budget agility, contract agility. Yeah, and I think you kind of need a new process for doing that. We've done this episodically before. We did this actually in, uh, in Iraq, uh, back when the IDs were a huge problem killing Americans daily. Uh, and we put together task forces, a lot of money flow. We brought the labs together. And we actually did that pretty well. So we know how to do it. We just don't do this as an order of practice that I think needs to become part of our DNA for how we do these things. So that's that's, a, that's something we've got to solve. Can you elaborate? What can be done? You've kind of alluded to it, but
0: is there anything in place that's going to change if they change the DFAR? Or what more can be done in this area?
1: I think some of this is going to have to come down to um, the Congress uh, agreeing to give us, uh, you know, I jokingly call it a hedge fund in uh, and, and, some people like that, love that, and some people hate that connotation. But but we need to have some type of money that has um, enough constraints on it to prevent fraud and you know unethical use of the dollars. But but also enough agility so that it, it, it's kind of like you can write a check. I mean, if you have a problem in your house and you and you've got to hire a plumber, you just write a check out of your. Checking account, right? You don't. You don't have a checking account for the plumber and a checking account for the gas station and a checking account for the laundry and a checking account for the grocery store. You've got one checkbook, I, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I do. In in DoD, we don't. We've got freaking. You know, we got twenty checkbooks. And, and it, if the money's not in the right checkbook to pay that bill, you got to move it. And the problem with that is, it you got to get so many people to say yes, and many don't, that you invariably can't move the money in time to. To fix your problem before it's OBE, or you become over—you know—you become overwhelmed by it. That's got to—we've got to fix that. We have to fix that. Well, we everybody, everybody always likes to say, "Well, we need acquisition reform." I'm like, no, no. Let acquisition do what it does well. Those billion-dollar things. Keep it doing that. This is something different. This is something else. And and I, I don't think we've got it. And this is where you get all these things like. Strategic Capability Office, and DIU, and Naval X, and AFWorks and you get all these different innovation, you know, things trying to do this. But none of them really, at the end of the day, really have the pot of money that's got that agility tied to it. I mean, again, they they maybe do pieces of this in a small scale, but nobody's really scratched this yet and gotten this to the scale that really matters. God, we've got to solve that. Absolutely. So the next few couple of
0: questions, sir, I have around uh, sort of capabilities and where I want to go is quantum first. Uh, quantum technology is a lot of promise uh, for fleet deployment. What are you doing in this
1: area? And perhaps you could explain to us the implications
0: of advancing in this technology.
1: So we're, we're doing a fair amount. So let me just be clear. We're not doing quantum computing. OK, that's that. Others in the government are doing that. And so we're going to let that, that be done in other parts of the government and we're going to watch that but we're looking at what's the impact of quantum computing going to be on algorithms. So quantum algorithms is something we're looking at. What what does that even mean? How do we do it? Who should do that? Um, Quantum sensing quantum, for for instance, sensing uh, magnetic anomalies, sensing inertial uh, movement of a, of a platform Um, quantum timing, quantum clocks. So we've got a quantum clock initiative we're doing for OSD right now. And then quantum communications and quantum networking. So the Naval Research Laboratory just started kind of a new quantum capabilities uh, center for you know for for the Naval Warfare Centers NRL Naval Research Lab right here in DC is going to basically uh, be kind of the focus area for me for for quantum activities for the Department of the Navy. They've got a team of incredibly talented scientists that have been actually working quantum for years and again mostly sensing and timing areas. Uh, and that is that is going to continue. They just started some quantum networking initiatives with other agencies in the DC area where we've got some some unused fiber optic cable between facilities and we're going to do some quantum network testing. So really exciting stuff, tremendously impactful, I think, going forward. Um, even it's just the sensing and the timing, if you can you can get even another order of magnitude of accuracy out of an inertial measurement unit you can potentially prolong the amount of time you stay underwater for a submarine, for instance. Uh, all of this has tremendous warfighting impact. Um, and in quantum computing, I mean, once, once that becomes more mainstream uh, the algorithms that will ride on those computers, whether it's to do AI or other, other types of optimization problem solving uh, could be tremendously impactful. And uh, there's folks at NRL that are already starting to think about that as well. So uh, quantum is a, I think what I would consider three, Kind of pillars or areas that I think the U.S. and our like minded allies and partners need to become kind of the first or fastest movers on.
0: How is the Office of Naval Research changing the way it operates? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
2: How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today.
0: welcome back to the business of government hour i'm michael keegan your host and our guest today is rear admiral lauren selby chief of naval research the next area i think is just as fascinating as lasers the next generation direct energy weapon systems i'm wondering what's going on in there what's the role of this technology in reimagining the way navy or the naval enterprise will will fight
1: yeah well i mean just go back to your sci-fi you know stories or books and the you know ray guns and all that kind of stuff and so I mean, here it is, you know, it's, it's kind of now real and we're putting lasers on platforms today. Um, it's funny, I, I oftentimes I'll, I'll get questions or maybe it's um, poked a little bit about, you know, Lauren, you, you spent all this money on this basic research and, you know, what has it done for me lately? And, you know, I'm like, oh my God, what has it done for me lately? Well, let me tell you what, what here's what happens. If I spend $0 on basic science or basic research today, I guarantee you, you'll get nothing. You'll get nothing in five, 10, 15, 20 years. But if I spend, you know, hundred million dollars, I can't quantify that you're going to get, you know, I can't tell you exactly what you're going to get, but I guarantee you're going to get, you're going to get some credible capability. Laser. Okay. So lasers, O&R started funding something called the Maser back at Columbia University back in the fifties. Okay. That became the laser. That became initial laser research technology development. Yes, it took until the 2000s before you had a laser on a ship. That's a long time. I got it. Host of reasons why that, you know, the the zigs and zags that prevented that from being done faster. But I guarantee if we had not spent those dollars back in the 50s, you'd probably still be waiting for lasers. So that is critically important for that basic research to be doing that kind of research. So lasers, what does lasers do for us? Well, if I can actually use use a laser to... Take down some type of an airborne contact, whether it's a quadcopter or a missile or a, a, you know, a fighter aircraft. That means I don't have to use some other weapon system that takes up space on my ship, or submarine to take it down. I have a limited space on our platforms. Um, I can only carry so many missiles, so many rounds for phalanx guns or other systems. And as a result of that, if an adversary is trying to overwhelm me with a large number of, whether it's small, agile, many things, like I've been talking about, or if it's missile systems, I'm going to pretty much run out of weapons to take those weapons out pretty quickly. Lasers, on the other hand, if I can perfect the technology, have enough power, have enough directional beam control, uh, and be able to get that energy from that laser beam on that target long enough, somehow disable it or destroy it, I can fundamentally change the the calculus on how I defend my ship. And so then it becomes more of a question of, which contact, which which incoming threat do I take out with which one of my different systems on board, whether it's a laser, a high-end, you know, standard missile, you know, or even down to the phalanx, or or maybe I try to use some kind of a, a decoy to draw it off my ship instead of trying to kill it. How do I prioritize that? That becomes the challenge at that point. And so we're doing this kind of we're doing a couple of things. One, obviously lasers are, are being deployed. We're actually working very closely with the other services and, and uh, OSD research and engineering, r e to develop higher energy laser systems. Uh, that is ongoing work that will result in systems going on platforms in the next several years. Additionally, we're working on some initiatives to utilize artificial intelligence to help the combat systems on our platforms, assess the incoming threats, and then help prioritize which uh, effector takes out which incoming threat. And again, if you leave it up to the human to decide, you're going to basically, you know, try to kill everything as far away as you possibly can, which means you're going to have a lot of leakers and a lot of others that are going to get through. Uh, if you if it's an optimization problem, then you may have to actually wait until some of these threats get really close before one of your systems takes it out which is going to be very hard for the human to do on his own or her own volition so if i can have the ai help me prioritize and in some cases even take my hands off the trigger as it were and let it just do what it does to take out the threats in an optimized way much better chance that you'll survive that engagement and so we're working on that as well fascinating
0: I want to switch gears from laser and quantum to additive manufacturing and talk about what you folks are doing and groundbreaking advances in this area. Maybe perhaps tell us a little bit about the lightweight innovation for tomorrow, lift metals manufacturing Institute. And,
1: and, and then I have another follow-on question from that. Yeah. So I mean, advanced manufacturing, additive manufacturing, whatever you're I I like to call it advanced manufacturing because it takes all kinds of different technologies. Um, Transformational, uh, as you can imagine. Um, When I was a chief engineer in my last job over at NAFC, um, really started getting in this whole world of of AM and what's happening in that arena. Um, Has the potential to totally transform the way we uh, obviously manufacture weapon systems. It has the ability to allow you to create shapes and forms, physical objects that you just cannot manufacture any other way. Um, That's incredibly exciting that can result in everything from greater increased strength to reduced weight, just tremendous opportunity. It's just it's convergence of cyber and physical that's really just transforming the world right now. Um, brings in the best practices of digital engineering and digital design, marry that up with uh, advanced manufacturing, and then you can accelerate maybe some aspects of your design process. You can optimize kind of the physical structures that you're creating with these, these new techniques. Uh, just incredibly exciting. So everything from ship repair If you've got obsolete parts or components maybe you can print them instead of actually having to go find something that's close and then tweak it or modify it uh, if it's not existing in the stock system maybe you can just go print it out so a lot of huge potential here for logistics so maybe I'm just shipping powder around the Pacific instead of fully formed valves or components, which is probably easier to do. So, anyway, that's that's in, very impactful. Lyft is a is kind of a collaborative effort we're doing with with other services, other parts of government, to really kind of get after how we innovate in this kind of advanced manufacturing space. So it's kind of a public-private partnership between. DoD industry and academia, bringing kind of the smartest minds, the smartest, uh, you know, metallurgists and and, uh, machinists together to show how we can actually develop, again, maybe things we've never even imagined you could produce with these devices or replace existing components with maybe even better, stronger components made with unique properties and unique materials. So really exciting. One of the aspects, you know, as the former Chang, one of the things that, concerned me and, and still is a concern, but, you know, we can overcome it is that we've got, I mean, thousands of years of experience with, you know, traditional irons and steels and, you know, things we've been working since the iron age. Okay. And so we know how those material properties, you know, we, how they perform under stress under strain. uh, We know how they crack, when they crack, how they react in, when exposed to corrosive components like seawater or acids or, you know, whatever. When you manufacture something with a, a you know advanced manufacturing technique, especially additive manufacturing, the structural properties of the material can be can be totally different. In fact, you can blend materials in ways you cannot do in any other way. The orientation of the build of the print component can change the structural properties in different axes and different orientations. And so, we have got to figure out how do we characterize these components to assure ourselves that when we put it on a plane or on a submarine that it's going to perform the way you would have expected a traditionally manufactured component to perform or maybe even better. But how do you prove that to yourself? And that that's going to take a little bit of effort. But organizations like Lyft, other um, America Makes, these organizations are trying to get after that. Good news, aviation, commercial aviation is looking at this really hard, as is automotive manufacturing. So they're starting to gather data. They're starting to do testing. We've got to work this together as a team. It cannot cannot be any single organization doing this. it's just it's too pregantu a project to do. but it's, it's so impactful that it's it's a it's a must do. It's an absolute must do. Excellent perspective. I want to switch gears a bit. And, and get to the
0: idea, you've mentioned, you know, um, data is the new oil and software is the new steel in this environment. So I was wondering, how has the advent of digital systems fundamentally changed the design capabilities and principles on which organizations must operate to be successful in a d- digital platform? And more specifically for the, for the na- naval research, how has it transformed from a requirements checklist type mindset to one that seeks to solve problems?
1: yeah yeah so so if you think about kind of the the world that uh, we used to live in where literally you were developing p- blueprints and you were having to take a blueprint and then by hand basically transcribe from the blueprint to another document that got translated down to the shop floor where a machinist was then on a lathe maybe or in a drill press maybe manufacturing components to make the end device that that blueprint is is calling for you to build okay and that's the way we did it for thousands of years i mean i mean that's the way we did things and uh, and that all fundamentally has changed over the last 25 30 years maybe 40 years you know since the 80s somewhere in that it started changing now the change was slow and it, and in some pockets it's still it's still slow but in other pockets it is just totally transforming the world you're starting to see um, in particular, the commercial aviation space and now in the military aviation space, we're able to design the entire platform in a digital three-dimensional kind of tool set and then also support that design into models to simulate its performance under different environmental conditions. So that is clearly where you need to be if you want to stay agile. And you want to change the design, see what the design change does to performance, to acoustic properties, to hydrodynamics, to whatever. That can all be done now. The problem we have today is that there are different pockets that do this better than others. So when it comes to like the three-dimensional design tool, the CAD CAM kind of things that we used to talk about in college, those tools are actually pretty mature. And, and most organizations are using those tools. But there's a point where you, you get done with that initial design that you now have to go to. Uh, maybe, maybe you have to compete the design and pick a vendor to go build the, the thing, whatever the thing is. Well, there's a, there's a break there between, you know, maybe I'm using one tool set in my design shop and it's a different tool set in a, in a manufacturing environment. So you now gotta figure out how do I translate this product into that new environment. That can take a, some degree of fat fingering or some degree of rendering or changes to the to the model to make that fit properly. Uh, and then furthermore, when you when you finish manufacturing it, you now go into the test and evaluation environment. Well, some of that TNA I wanna do in modeling and SIM, some I wanna do for real. Those breaks are also uh, not very clean. And then finally, when you get done with delivering the system, the ship, the platform, the weapon, whatever it is, you now have a, a many years of keeping that thing in service and doing maintenance and maintaining it. Yet another set of tools might be involved and another set of vendors might be involved in those tools. And so we've not yet completed what I call the digital thread. So that thread that goes from initial concept refinement, you know, back of the envelope, back of the napkin kind of design things we used to think, talk about when the, the aha moment occurred when you're you know, sitting in a restaurant with a friend and you all of a sudden have to scribble on a piece of paper this concept or this picture of what you think this thing could be um, to the point of actually delivering and maintaining that device. That is a complete. That needs to be a complete digital thread. And we got to figure out how we do that. How do you handle the fact that you are going to have different vendors, different contractors? You're going to have different tools. We've got to build this more continuous process so you can really have that total agility throughout the life of that platform. And again, you're starting to see this come together. Uh, It's a little kludgy still. And this is where you need organizations like uh, NIST, National Institute of Standards, to help us drive those standards across the whole of government, whole of industry to drive that commonality. And so that's starting to happen. Um, and I think once that kind of uh, gets in lockstep, as it were, it's going to be amazing how fast we can actually go with some of these designs and change the designs. There, there may still be a penalty for the manufacturer, particularly if it's like a large complex thing where you have to put a ship in dry dock or you've got a bring a plane into a hangar and take it apart. There's going to be some time penalty for that, but it'll still be far faster than it is today. So that's kind of what these digital tools for you. Then you bring in things like advanced manufacturing, digital twins, where you're able to monitor how tool or the device or the generator should operate in a perfect environment compared to how it's operating in real life and look for the divergence and the differences, and then go find out why there's differences from the you know the perfect environment to the the current environment, and then react accordingly. Maybe you gotta do some kind of maintenance. Maybe you gotta replace something. Maybe you just have to alter the, you know, the fuel, fuel-to-air mixture. I mean, it can be all kinds of things, but that, that digital twinning gives you those kind of capabilities as well. So it is transforming the world and it's incredibly exciting. I think we're still kind of on, watching this, this wave is kind of, we're still, still kind of on it. We're not, we haven't gotten through the wave yet, but it's exciting, tremendously impactful. And it's going to change every aspect of our, our lives. So the, the cyber and physical
0: domains, as we've seen, are increasingly intertwined. What is what are you doing in the area of maintaining operational dominance in the cognitive domain, or what you call decision
1: superiority? Yeah. So I so I truly believe again there there's um, um, there's an abundance of information that is bombarding uh, the human operator every single day. I mean, we, you, you feel in like your personal life. I mean, just think about your your daily, your daily life with the emails your you know, popping your inbox box continuously and if you're on social media, the social media feed that you keep seeing continuously and you can very quickly become overwhelmed with that bombardment if, if you allow yourself to be. And if you are just kind of willing to kind of just let it ride as it were and just like, ah eh, whatever, then you're going to miss something. That's the other danger. There's going to be some critical email that comes in that you're going to miss. So how do you utilize the best of, of AI to help kind of offload what I would call the the dull and dirty and tedious work and allow the, you know, and so let the machine do the things the machine does well, but allow the human to do what only the human can do, at least up till now, which is kind of more of that abstraction, abstract thinking. So let the machine kind of declutter your inbox, declutter your life and present you with the things that only you should be acting upon and only you are really tuned to actually do. That's kind of what we're trying to get after. I mean, you can kind of think back to John Boyd and his OODA loop when he really came up with this idea of observe, orient, decide, and act. Um, And and even that is very simplistic. In fact, if you go Google John Boyd, there's a whole host of papers you can can find from him which are fascinating. And OODA loop is just, it, it dumbs it down beyond belief to what he really was getting after. But if you just take that as a simplistic starting point for this discussion, the observe part, is really your sensors, whatever sensor you have that are observing the environment and bringing that information back to you. So the orient and decide part of the UDA are the key pieces that I'm getting after. So observe sensors, got it. We, we've got those. But then how do you orient yourself to the environment that you're in, to the situation that, that you're being presented with, with the objectives that you have in mind? How do you do that? And then how do you then decide on what the action you're going to take is? And then finally from that, uh, you know, there's, there's obviously the action that occurs, but if you just look at the, the, the middle two parts of that, so the orient and decide, how can I utilize the machine to help me orient myself more quickly? And again, all you got to do is be a little bit quicker than the adversary. That's, that's true in business and banking as it is in warfare. If I'm a little quicker and I'm, <laughs> I, I call it writer. If I'm, I'm a I'm more right than you are. just maybe, maybe, I'm not always right, but if I'm writer than you are uh, and I'm quicker, uh, I have a chance to maybe have the upper hand. That's what—that's kind of the concept of decision superiority. How do we do that? And then as you get to that point of deciding, um, there's going to be things that happen so rapidly that the machine is going to have to present the human with options and give you kind of veto authority. Before that machine takes an action, you get a chance to say yes or no. If you say no, no action happens. But if you say yes to the action, the machine takes over again, and at machine speed, it directs the action whether it's firing a missile, firing a laser, maybe it's just turning left to, to avoid a collision, whatever whatever the action is, that has to happen at machine speed. Because again, you need to shave off as many micro or milliseconds as you possibly can in that decision to action space to gain an upper hand over the adversary. That's what decisions per is trying to get at.
0: Yeah,
1: wonderful perspective,
0: sir. I just have one more question for you before we close. Uh, what advice would you give someone
1: who's considering a career in public or military service, sir? I would say there, there's nothing more rewarding uh, than, uh, in, my, so in my case, military, I'm biased. From, from biased uh, but I, I think there's nothing more rewarding than, than serving your country. And you, you can do as a civilian or an active duty member like myself. You're serving the nation, the people. You are defending the ideals that are be- still held in the Constitution uh, from our great nation. We need bright, smart, energetic people in our team across the spectrum, whether it's, again, as a civilian or as a military member, the work is impactful. Again, if you if you get connected to a warfighter or, or someone on the, the, what I call the pointy end of the spear uh, and you, you develop kind of a personal relationship with that person because you understand his or her problem and you then want to be a part of helping solve it, there's nothing more rewarding than that.
0: Admiral Selby, thank, thank you for joining me today. But more importantly, sir, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you very much. It's been an honor. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Rear Admiral Lauren Selby, Chief of Naval Research. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
2: How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, Yan Yan Eng presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.